We are actuaries. In a world filled with unpredictability, we use our math skills to navigate uncertainty. Actuaries make a difference in people's lives across industries and the world. Actuaries have the freedom to work anywhere. And according to U.S. News & World Report, we're the 25th top-paying career. Make an impact as a fact-seeker and a truth-teller. Use your math skills for good as an actuary. The world needs you. You're listening to episode 213 of TV's Top 5, the Hollywood Reporter's TV podcast. I'm Leslie Goldberg, the West Coast TV editor, and I'm joined as always by the one, the only, the marvelous Mr. Daniel Feinberg, THR's chief TV critic. Hey, Dan. What up, Leslie? How ya holding up? Oh, you know, it's upfront madness time. The WGA is on strike. Think there is a lot of shit going on. And, and this just in, Warner Brothers Television is not renewing Ava DuVernay's rich overall deal. She's been based at the studio for, I believe, what sources said is that it was a 60 to $80 million overall deal. This has absolutely nothing to do with the WGA strike. As we know, all of the big studios have been sending out suspension letters for to all of their uh, their writers with first look and overall deals. Obviously, if you're on strike, you're not working. And if you're not working, guess what? You're not getting paid. But the Ava deal, sources say, this is basically a decision that she made to not renew it. Actually, it honestly kind of sounds a little bit mutual. She wants to focus on film which makes sense. TV hasn't exactly been super successful for her outside of Queen Sugar, but it's also WB saying this was a massive overall deal that they signed right at the height of the diversity push, and they didn't exactly get great output from it. So probably a win-win for both Ava and the studio. But has Ben and Jerry's re-upped Ava DuVernay's overall deal because her flavor of Ben and Jerry's was surprisingly good. I defer to you as the ice cream critic here. All I will say, though, is Menchie's Dole Whip is A+. As a, as a Dole Whip connoisseur, yeah. Dodger Stadium, still better, obviously. But anyway, Very I digress. Quick. Well, we're in week two of the writer's strike. This episode, we return to our new segment, The Strike Zone, with a 45-minute interview with Chris Kaiser, the Julia showrunner who returns to TV's Top 5 to discuss the strike from his perch as co-chair of the WGA's negotiating committee. If you are interested in what is going on between the writers and the studios, this is a must-listen interview. And full disclosure, no horns in the background. <laughs> Did you get complaints about the horns in the background of your interviews last week? Because come on, that's what... I did not, but I'm just oh, saying, okay. like, as someone out there doing these interviews, it, it, it's very hard to, oh. to do that when you're constantly hearing the horns. And I mean, I get it. That, those, that That's how you hear your support from people who are driving by. And I get that. Props to anyone who's who's doing that. But as a reporter, it does... It, it, it doesn't exactly make for the best quality. And, I'll, uh, and I can tell you our producer probably feels the exact same way. But, you know, I do want to uh, to note that um, there there was a great clip this week and we'll play it next. But because it's part of what's going on with uh, on the front lines is you're starting to see a lot more unity from actors who have joined writers on the picket lines. And probably the best soundbite is uh, a clip that went viral of Mandy Patankin, who was carrying a very Princess Bride-inspired sign, and you can hear his clip. We'll play that that for you. Background noise included right here. Don't be stupid! Make sure you take care of people! You guys who make millions and millions of 
I have not listened to that yet, though. I did love the picket line picture of uh, Mandy Patinkin and Bob Odenkirk together as the two Sauls. I thought that was a uh, a terrific opportunity taken by those two. So, uh, you know, look, we, we, we think that Mandy Patinkin is probably a mensch, and it's nice to have it confirmed that Mandy Patinkin is a mensch. Yes. Well, as usual, we're going to start off with... Uh our usual segment with headlines, and then we'll get into the strike zone in our fourth segment. So without further ado, leading off the week's top headlines. Number one. With news that broke last week, Paramount has officially announced that Yellowstone is going to end with its current fifth season amid a standoff with star Kevin Costner, who, according to sources, reportedly won't return to the set until he approves of the fate of his character, John Dutton. Paramount has also officially ordered a sequel to the series that will stream on Paramount Plus, which is, of course, a boon to all of this. That's, you know, obviously Kevin Costner walking away from the show because he didn't want to film as much or work as much on it as Paramount wanted of him. The plus here is that Bob Backish made a deal when he first came in to Paramount Global as CEO to sell streaming rights of Yellowstone to Peacock, the NBC Universal streamer. And with the decision to end the flagship series and officially order a sequel that sources a Matthew McConaughey is still expected to star in, though a deal is yet to close, now Paramount could actually get streaming rights to the, what will now be the main show in the franchise. So once season five of Yellowstone ends, Peacock will, will get the streaming rights to that, and then that's it. And then you can go, Paramount will have all of its shows in-house. Continuing along with various pieces of strike news, the final season of Stranger Things has been delayed by the labor unrest. The Duffer Brothers said that writing, it simply doesn't stop once filming begins. Not particularly shocking or revelatory, but probably a big deal if you're Netflix. And speaking of Netflix, with upfront presentations set for next week, and we may say a few more words about that a little bit later, Netflix has <laughs> shifted next, its... Yeah. Up next, if you prefer, even. Uh, Netflix has shifted its in-person event to promote the ad-supported service uh, to a live stream as members of the WGA plan to pick up the presentations. Next up, Amazon is changing its release pattern for The Summer I Turned Pretty and is shifting to a weekly rollout for season two after it dropped season one in a binge release. Amazon sources say the move had nothing to do with the writer's strike and was planned months ago, but uh, Leslie, from her vantage point, and I guess I now talk about myself in the third person, says this gets you to a lot, gets gets more time from your for your content. You're able to stretch out what you have by shifting to a weekly rollout pattern for a show that apparently was pretty popular for them. And I say apparently because guess what? Say it with me, folks. Streamers don't release viewership data. Did I sound like Grover? I don't know. I'm, I'm kind of punchy right now. You so. sounded like a Muppet. I don't know necessarily like you sounded exactly like Grover, but you definitely sounded like a Muppet. Mm -hmm. so. Yoda? Y Yoda. It's, it's Grover after having eaten Yoda. Well, I mean, if, you're, if your point is that you were trying to do a Frank Oz-related voice, I can totally understand that as a thing you were achieving. Um, no, I'm actually a little disappointed with us that we did not theorize this in any of our conversations previously yeah. about how streamers might respond to this, is, is this gives them programming that stretches further. Now, obviously, 
doing a weekly rollout is not a new thing for Amazon. It's a thing that they do. Like if Netflix comes out next week and says, okay, the new season of whatever is going to be a weekly rollout, then we go, Ooh, okay, that's significant. But even just splitting seasons into two parts has become significant for them, too. Absolutely, and that spreads things out. But yeah, I'm I'm disappointed that we did not think of this as another thing that people would do, was take things that were binge rollouts at some point and make them into weekly rollouts just so that you stretch your programming a little bit uh, thinner. It's entirely a reasonable thing to do, even if Amazon definitely didn't do it for exactly this reason. So, yeah. I mean, even if they made a decision months ago, it was, seemed pretty apparent even months ago that there was going to be a strike among the Writers Guild. So, like, it's it's a good idea. Take credit for the good idea. Why <laughs> why shy away from having had a good idea? Anyway, yeah. makes sense. And we'll talk Fine. more about uh, about strike contingency plans and uh, when we get up to our next segment with Upfronts. Indeed, and. Uh, Sure. But if you want to, you can now pretend that this first segment is a Jeopardy segment. Uh, We do not encourage that because we're done with Jeopardy segments. But in any case, speaking of Jeopardy news, Mayim Bialik, whose uh, Fox sitcom was canceled last week, I believe, uh, has stepped back from her co-hosting gig on Jeopardy in support of the writers as she refused to cross picket lines. So that means that Ken Jennings will be doing all of the Jeopardy hosting, which you know, I, I think probably makes some people happy, <laughs> but, but on the other hand of the Jeopardy of the two Jeopardy hosts, only one of them has been a guest on TV's top five. And that was Maya Bialik. And uh, what episode was she on, uh, Leslie? Maya Bialik joined us in episode 154, February 4th, 2022. Yes, that was back when we were doing Jeopardy segments basically every week. Uh, I personally prefer to not do Jeopardy segments every week, but this is still absolutely and totally Jeopardy news. Leslie, do you have deep thoughts on this Jeopardy news? No. Excellent. (laughs) On to number two. (laughs) Number two. Up next, you may have noticed that in recent years, Basically, as long as this podcast existed previously, we would do updates on pilot season, on upfronts, on all of that as they were coming up. And this year, for the most part, we didn't. We have outdone. We done those mini segments, I guess, on how we're not doing segments on upfronts and pilot season. But in any case, the biggest week of the television calendar or what used to be the biggest week of the television calendar is next week. Um Upfronts are indeed coming up as Disney, Fox, NBC Universal, Warner Brothers Discovery, the aforementioned Netflix, we just mentioned that, are all making presentations to people with money who will be buying ads, even if their services didn't have ads last year at this time. Whee! So, Leslie, even though this is not really the biggest week of the calendar next year, you're still probably going a little bit crazy with the stuff this week and next week. So break it down for us. Yeah, so there's still a lot of decisions that have to be made. ABC has seven shows remaining on the bubble. The CW has a few shows left to make decisions on as they're uh, negotiating with Warner Brothers about its remaining slate. Fox still has decisions on two shows. NBC has yet to renew any of its comedies beyond Night Court. So 
Let's start with what we know so far, and that is CBS, God bless them. They pulled out of Upfront Week as, at, with Paramount sitting out this presentation to Madison Avenue ad buyers. And instead, they are now completely and totally done, Dan. God, I remember Saturday mornings after the hell day of the Friday before Upfronts was like CBS all making its final decisions on the stuff that couldn't that they couldn't figure out deals with before, you know, the end, end of day Friday or while execs were on planes going to New York. So now instead, they are the first network to be completely done. They have already announced their fall schedule, which effectively the network has put its head in the sand with regard to the Writers Guild and the strike. They've renewed SWAT after it was canceled for three days. And that had an inverse effect on East New York, which was going to get renewed before the Sony and CBS studios came to a deal for an abbreviated 13 episode seventh and final season of SWAT. Also canceled at CBS is the True Lies reboot, which seemed to be a non-starter after getting pushed around the schedule and delayed and gone back and forth. And then let's see what else on the new series front. CBS has ordered the Kathy Bates led Matlock. Yeah, you can insert the what year are we in joke right here. There's a third show in the King's Good franchise with Elspeth. And Damon Wayans Sr. and Damon Wayans Jr. are going to star in a father-son comedy that has been titled Papa's House. Yeah, I'm going to leave a little space here for people to say, really? Papa's House? Yep, Papa's <laughs> House. So CBS, thank you very much for making our jobs very easy. They are done but I do want to talk, circle back and talk about that schedule for a second because, honestly, it's business as usual. The only thing that they really did was extend unscripted show Survivor and The Amazing Race to 90 minutes apiece for, the entire, for their entire upcoming seasons, which eliminates the need for a third show on that night. Obviously, holding back inventory based on how on what happens and how long the, the WGA strike continues is going to be a common refrain that you will hear next week during upfronts and once all the other networks unveil their schedules. So yeah, I mean, this is basically CBS telling ad buyers, even though they're not doing a, a presentation, hey, we're going to have business as usual. We're going to sell you this schedule with complete with NCIS and all of our other stalwarts. And we've got these flashy new shows with big names and IP and, attached to them. Buy ads on CBS. We're business as usual, even though that's probably unlikely to be the case. There will be some scheduling changes because ever, you know, you'll hear from Chris Kaiser coming up. No one really knows how long this thing is going to last. From what I've heard from, from writers out on the picket line, it sounds like it could be six months, some ending perhaps sometime in the fall. Either way, it's going to have an impact on the return of the broadcast shows, at, le at least on the scripted front. Shifting to Fox, the network has canceled Fantasy Island. And as you mentioned, Dan, the, the Mayan Bialik-led comedy Call Me Cat. It has renewed Animal Control, starring Joel McHale. Still to be determined there is the future of Welcome to Flatch and the animated comedy House Broken. Yeah, Fox has really cut back on what it's doing in terms of scripted. They've made a big push with animation. They obviously own Animation House Bento Box, which produces the animation for Bob's Burgers, among other shows. But what's interesting here is Animal Control, which they say does very, very well on Tubi, which, again, who the hell knows what that means. But Fox fully owns Animal Control. They, It is not a co-production with any other studio. It is owned 100% in-house. And that is going to be one of the common refrains that you will hear. We've talked in the past about 
what happened on Blue Bloods when CBS renewed that show. The cast and creatives took a 25% pay cut, and CBS owns that show. The cast of Bob Hart's Abishola, everyone save for Bob and Abishola, have been bumped from series regular to recurring as part of a cost-saving measure. CBS does not own that show. That's a Warner Brothers show from Chuck Lorre, and, and Warner's never does co-pros on anything from Chuck Lorre, including Young Sheldon. So that will be something to continue to keep an eye on. Uh, we'll go up to NBC next. They've been really quiet this week, at least as of our recording time. And they still have comedies, American Auto, Grand Crew, and Young Rock, as well as the rookie Lopez versus Lopez on the bubble. Lots of decisions to come there. We know that, you know, if you go back and listen to our interview with Susan Rovner, the decision to move Girls 5 Eva from Peacock to Netflix is because they're not ready to put comedy on that platform yet. It's not it's not able to break through the way that dramas are. So stay tuned to see how that has a ripple effect for NBC. ABC, meanwhile, has the most decisions to make. They've got Big Sky, The Connors, Home Economics, as well as Rookie's Alaska Daily, The Company You Keep, Not Dead Yet, and The Rookie Feds, all awaiting word. Um, hearing obviously good things that the Connors will come back. I'm guessing this is the delay here is probably licensing fee related and trying to make the economics of that show work a little bit better amid the implosion of broadcast ratings. But yeah, they already own a big bunch of their schedule. The Connors they don't own. Home Economics is a co-pro, I believe, with Lionsgate. But yeah, you know they've they've got some room, and it'll be a big question to see how, what they do. They have, I as memory serves. They have the most pilots of any of the broadcast networks in terms of comedies and dramas. So plus all of these bubble shows and they just brought back Dancing with the Stars for linear as well as a, a concurrent release on streaming. So that's, again, a, a great thing for strike, uh, you know, to, to help strike proof of schedule. So we'll wait and see how ABC announces its schedule Monday, if they're going to acknowledge the strikes impact on scripted or if they won't. So that's, again, something to, to pay attention to next week. I want to wrap up here with The CW. This week, The CW made all of its decisions on shows that are produced by CBS Studios, as in the C in The CW. They are going to keep Jared Padalecki on the network again with a reduced episode renewal for Walker. They've canceled its prequel, Walker Independence. And sources say the network may indeed cancel everything else. This just in, we know for sure that the CW has announced that Kung Fu and the Winchesters, as in the supernatural prequel that finally made its way onto the air after multiple attempts by Mark Pedowitz to get to really expand that beloved franchise, those are both canceled. Still to be determined here, All-American Homecoming, and as well as Superman and Lois, and Rookie Gotham Knights. So sources say CW Entertainment President Brad Schwartz wants to keep one DC drama on the network that previously already renewed flagship All-American. So what we're looking at right now is a CW that consists of a ridiculous amount of foreign imports that have already aired elsewhere and low-cost originals. We've talked endlessly about the impact of, of new ownership Nexstar on the network and their efforts to make it profitable. And that's why all of these scripted shows are going away. So stay tuned. We'll, you know, we'll, we'll continue to update next week and on THR.com with what comes, what becomes of the CW's remaining shows. So Dan, there's a lot to, to crack through here, oh, but uh, so much. the other, the other question too is we know CBS has already made its decision on, on its pilots. The only one that they passed over was the comedy Jumpstart tar starring Terry Crews, which sources say didn't come in very well. 
But you look at, at some of these other things, you know, NBC is a big question mark. They already have two shows that they developed during pilot season 2022. That's Found and The Irrational. They already order the Michael Malley comedy starring John Cryer, which was developed off cycle. So the big question going forward is going to be how many of these pilots will actually have decisions made now or if they're just going to extend options on the cast and wait to make those those calls and and to see how long the strike goes in what's it, and what they're able to do with this. So lots lots still to come. And it all raises the question of what the purpose of next week's dog and pony show even is at this exact moment. Like if you are asking ad buyers to buy ads on shows that don't exist yet or alternatively on shows that you have no way of knowing whether they're going to be available to air in September and October, what exactly are you selling them on? And I guess it will be a lot of people doing kind of the general puffery about brand identity. And there's going to be selling the full portfolio, Dan, don't you know? It's like everyone's got an ad supported streamer. Everyone has a traditional streamer with multiple tiers, plus broadcast. And in many cases, just Cable, too. So it's a portfolio approach. And obviously, broadcast is just one piece of that. It's true. But they will also still, at least in several cases, uh, insist that broadcast remains the best way to get live viewership or eyeballs or whatever the thing is that they say every single year. And as always, it's probably kind of true. <laughs> but yeah, no, the the shift in the way that this week and next week operate from previous years is a remarkable thing. Lots of interesting details that you just went through. Uh, people should go to THR and find your terrific story on what exactly went down on SWAT. Uh, I think people who are regular listeners to the podcast, when they heard Sean Ryan's interview on the podcast, where he talked about the sort of strangeness of the idea that SWAT was in limbo, but not in any way because of its actual ratings slash audience, I think that was kind of a an indication of what Leslie was going to be reporting on. Yeah, and that would be in episode 207 from March 24th of, of this year. Indeed. But yeah, he even Sean said that this is an economics decision. SWAT's ratings went up year over year, which rarely, if ever, happens on broadcast anymore these days. But it is a co-production between Sony and CBS, which means CBS has to pay out a licensing fee to air the show. In previous years, Sony has taken hits and lowered the licensing fee to keep the show on the air. This year, Sony, however, has a new executive after Catherine Pope joined from Charter and Spectrum Originals, which obviously Spectrum Originals isn't actually making scripted originals anymore. And Catherine Pope, as you know, sources say, called, so called CBS and said, we're not going to take a licensing fee a hit on this one. We're already bleeding money on this. And CBS came back and said, after a, a back and forth, and as one source described it, a game of chicken, said okay, we'll give you X amount of dollars, but we want only 13 episodes. Can you do it for this money? Sony allegedly, per sources, said, absolutely no, absolutely not. CBS said, okay, well, we're going to cancel the show. Then sources say Sean Ryan got wind of, of what happened and said, wait a second, we can make the show for that for 13 episodes. And they're like, oh, really? Cool. We'll, we'll, we'll renew it then. Great. Everyone's happy, except the show got canceled for three days and Shamar Moore went nuts on social. So... <laughs> Great. I mean, I guess this falls into any PR is good PR category at this point. But uh, yeah, we'll pour one out for, for the cast and creatives of East New York who uh, kind of got hosed by this whole thing. But again, 
East New York was facing the same thing. It was a show produced by Warner Brothers, and Warner Brothers probably would have had to take a licensing fee hit to do another season on this one. So obviously the economic models of doing a broadcast show are crazy. They they're very different. And I don't think you're necessarily wrong, even if you were joking about the no publicity is bad publicity when it comes to what's happening with uh with SWAT. I mean this gives the fans the chance to feel like they had something to do with it. It gives the fans the chance to feel like Shamar Moore had something to do with it. And, you know, fans like to feel as if they're involved in a decision. Now, did CBS really look at reactions from fans over two days and decide, ah, sure, fine, let's bring it back? No, of course not. That's, that's not really the way, <laughs> that's not the business, the way the business works. But still in all, it gives everyone an added f- piece of ownership over a property, not to be confused with the people who actually have ownership, because those were the people who were responsible for the whole thing. But, but yeah, that's, there's, there's that which is a little bit crazy. All of the stuff happening with the CW is, not just, surprising, but still crazy. It's, it's just perplexing. It's it, it's sort of the idea of what is the lowest threshold of programming that recognizably fits within the CW that you can keep on the air in order to allow people to still call it the CW and think that it's the CW that they know and love while people like you and everyone else are waiting for them to just remove the name the CW and move on to other things when we don't need to pretend that it's still the CW anymore. So like the idea that the math came down to, well, if we have All-American, Walker, and one DC show, it'll still feel somewhat like the CW to someone is it's kind of madness, but it's also, you know, what, what, what do they have as an alternative? If they're trying to convince people that they're a destination for programming, they want people to, if nothing else, think that they're still kind of the destination for a certain kind of programming. While meanwhile, they're picking up acquisitions involving Leah Thompson and stuff that are just like, okay, sure. That's a thing you're going to put on the air. Why not? That's, yeah, it's what's happening at the CW is mystifying. What's happening at Fox is a little bit mystifying. Also, uh, honestly, there, there's a lot of mystification going on on the broadcast TV landscape at this point. And, and normally, Upfront's Week would be the thing that would clarify what was mystifying us. And I'm fairly confident that next week is only going to leave us scratching our heads more. Probably. I mean, programming really hasn't been front and center at the upfronts for the past couple of years, including last year. I mean, Fox didn't even unveil its schedule during its, its upfront presentation, which that's the, probably the, the the easiest sign to see how much things have changed. But uh, going back to your comments about the CW, I'm just going to read some titles here. These are these are all shows coming to the CW this summer. The Rising, Barons, Son of a Critch, Run the Burbs, Moonshine, Season two of something called Bump, Family Law. And then coming this fall, The Spencer Sisters and Sullivan's Crossing. I don't know what any of those shows are, except for the fact that Leah Thompson stars in The Spencer Sisters, because that literally just came through my inbox. So, yeah, lots of lots of change going on everywhere. But again, not su- totally surprising, because Nexstar has said, they need to make this network profitable. And the way to do that is you cut spending. And the way to do that is you cut expensive scripted originals. So yeah, we'll see what happens with what remains of the CW in the coming days. Number three. Up third this week, we've talked for months about the future of Hulu as Disney needs to make a decision in the coming year about if it will buy out Comcast's remaining stake in the streamer. 
That decision came into better focus this week as CEO Bob Iger said on an earnings call that Disney is indeed moving forward with taking full control of Hulu and will integrate Hulu content with Disney Plus in the U.S. by year's end. Dan, were you surprised by this? Clearly not, because we've been talking about this for forever. And it, and the Hulu question has been kind of the great question that everyone at Disney has been having to deal with. And, and it is still going to be the great question until we actually get a clearer idea. Like, what does it mean to buy the rest of the stake in it? What does that mean for Disney Plus? How do they squish together? What does this mean? Like, are FX shows on Hulu now going to become FX on Disney Plus? Is, are they going to give FX an FX on Disney Plus tab? I, I, these are these are not important questions, but these are still questions that at some point will need to be answered. I, I think the idea that Disney had this three pronged bundleable entity that was you get Hulu, you get ESPN Plus, and you get Disney Plus and you have to get them separately or you get them piecemeal or you decide, do I want enough uh, ESPN content that that's worth it for me. None of it was very good for consumers. And so I, I think any form of consolidation and and whatever is is going to be good for business, just the question of what it's going to look like and what it's going to cost like is these are these are things for future earnings calls, I'm guessing. Yeah, I mean, this is, as you said, this is about scale and this is about money. You know, I'm going to read you a quote here. This is from Disney CEO Bob Iger, as he told uh, analysts on an earnings call, quote, while we continue to offer Disney Plus, Hulu and ESPN Plus as standalone options, this is a logical pro progression of our direct to consumer offerings that will provide greater opportunities for advertisers, cha-ching, cha-ching, while giving bundle subscribers access to more robust and streamlined content, resulting in greater audience engagement and ultimately leading to a more unified streaming experience. The advertising potential of this combined platform is incredibly exciting, he said. So, yeah, money, 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 ads, 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 scale, scale, scale. No one's going to want to turn away all of the Hulu subscribers like Disney's not going to sit there and say, we're going to give you these thousands, you know, hundreds of thousands of subscribers. Comcast buy out our two thirds share in Hulu and we'll let you scale up Peacock. Why would anyone who's got two thirds of a controlling stake in Hulu want to help a competitor? No, this is Iger sitting here and saying for the last couple months, he looked at everything and said, yeah, this is we should buy Hulu. There's no reason why we shouldn't. But again, what really is the question going back to what you, your comments, Dan, how are you going to integrate all this? I mean, at some point, do you just have a Hulu tab? I mean, we'll see because that's coming by the end of the year, at least for, for U.S. subscribers. You have to be available. You have to be a subscriber to both services to get this. But yeah, there's a lot of confusion here. And it also kind of like as I was, I'm sitting here listening to you talk about it, too, it just reminds me of the whole Paramount Plus Showtime question. And we saw how that ended or is ending. And some, uh, this is this is going to be the ongoing question for everybody, as you say, with Paramount Plus and bringing in Showtime and how that looks uh, with all of the Warner Brothers entities coming together on Max and with the various different tiers of Max. Everyone is finding all of these different ways to let's pretend if we're being generous, help customers find all of their content in one place. If we're being realistic to confuse the fuck out of uh, customers, I, I think that those are probably the two most logical 
options, uh, somewhat a little bit gouging customers, maybe in some cases saving customers a few bucks. I think it will depend on on what your needs are for these individual services. Yeah, there, there was a lot of wait and see to the stuff that came out of the Disney uh, conversation because there was also there was a comment made about pulling stuff back off of the streamers and taking impairment charges, which is way beyond my financial pay grade to understand. But yeah, no they're going to do exactly what Warner Brothers Discovery did. They're going to pull content that no one's watching on the on the service, but that they're paying for. So this is again, you're looking at the HBO Max thing all over again. So I mean, are you going to pull shows that underperform from Hulu? As, as well as Disney Plus. I mean, do you have the, the, the ability to do that with Hulu, considering Disney only owns two-thirds of it? But with Disney Plus, it's like, is there a show on that platform or a movie on that platform that no one's watching and that they're still paying for? It's all, again, it's, it's just creative accounting. So It is, and it's also somewhat counter to what the kind of initial ethos of Disney Plus was supposed to be, where it was the it was the no more are things going to be in the in the quote unquote Disney vault. We are we are opening up the Disney vault for everything but Song of the South. Song of the South will never escape the Disney vault ever, 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 ever. Uh, but yeah, it, but now it sounds as if some things are going to go back into the Disney vault. I, I would guess it's probably not going to be kind of the big ticket Disney animated movies. I, I don't think that's what it sounds like. As you say, I think it's going to be kind of shifts involving uh, things that no one watched and that will simply get either buried or or sent to uh, other services and whatnot. Um, but yeah, it, it's 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 mostly just wait and see. Like we're just going to have to see what it actually looks like. But it was another one of the things that was floated in the investor call that did not get fully explained that we're just going to have to sit back and wait on, I suppose. Up next, we return to our newly launched segment, Strike Zone, baseball pun intended, in which we feature voices speaking out about the labor unrest between the Writers Guild of America and the Alliance of Motion Picture and Television Producers, AMPTP, over uh, a new basic agreement. Number four. This week, we're joined by WGA Negotiating Committee co-chair Chris Kaiser, who previously served as president of the WG West from 2011 through 2015. His credits include both the original and the reboot of Party of Five. Netflix's COVID canceled The Society, and he currently serves as showrunner on the HBO Max series Julia, which you can go back and listen to our interview with him about the show and the Guild's battle with talent agencies over packaging from episode 162 in April 2022. Thanks so much for joining us again, Chris. Oh, I appreciate it. Thanks, Leslie. Thanks, Dan, for having me. So... Let's start with the obvious. The rumors are flying fast and furious around town, around the picket lines, about how long a WGA strike could last. Many are estimating it could end in the fall. I've heard anywhere from three months, which is what the last strike was, to six months. What are your projections about the duration of this at this point? We don't We don't really have projections about that. We don't have a crystal ball that's better than anyone else's. I think, as everyone understands, we ended negotiations because the company said they had nothing more to say about a list of proposals that we had that were absolutely necessary to protect writers' futures. Um, we are ready to go back and talk again as soon as they are ready to have serious conversations about that, but they're going to have to decide their own time frame. 
and we will we will wait. The pressure on them exists now, and it will build. And it's different for each of the companies in the AMPTP. It's not the same. I but I cannot say how long it will last. I don't think we're telling any members to expect that this is going to go over super quickly. But I don't want to. I don't want to get people feeling like they're waiting for an end that isn't near, or or give them a pessimistic. Uh, assessment of something that could turn around in, in less time than that. So I wish I could answer that question. It's the question everyone has. It's the question I have. I'd like it to be over. I don't want to be doing this. I want to be writing. You you mentioned that the different entities within the AMPTP all have different pressures and different levels of pressures on them. And obviously having an AMPTP as a sort of body to negotiate with slash against is a plus, but what are the challenges of figuring out what the different pressures are on different entities, what the different needs, responsibilities are, et cetera? Well, I mean, we, we have uh, people on staff who are dealing with that all the time, and we have a, a corporate campaign, and we, you know, we are, the principal thing we're doing is we're hope withholding our labor, and that labor is necessary for all the companies. It's necessary for them in different ways and on different schedules based upon their own business models, but it's that's universal. The truth is it's up to the companies to decide at which point this clinging together as if they have a single set of a you know, single business plan and a single agenda is worth it or becomes destructive for at least some of them. But that's not our business. You can it's it, you don't have to be a genius and look at this and say those legacy companies that, for example, have broadcast schedules to, um, you know, to adhere to shows in the fall that they are going to try to sell advertising for in the coming weeks uh, have a big risk that those writers rooms that should would inevitably lead to those shows will not begin when they were supposed to but every company has pressures everyone our product is what everyone sells and not having that product sooner or later becomes a big problem yeah i, I want to circle back to that a little bit later but you know what Right now, we just heard that as we record this, it's Wednesday afternoon, that the DGA and the AMPTP just met for the first time. With those negotiations beginning this week, obviously the DGA's contract, as well as SAG-AFTRA, are both up June 30th. When are you expecting talks with the AMPTP to resume with the Writers Guild? Have you had any conversations about about scheduling a, a return to the table yet, or is it really just in the studio's court? It really is in the studio's court. We, they know full well that the writers are not staying out a day longer than they need to. Uh, and as soon as they're willing to come in and have a serious conversation, we'll be there to do that. Obviously, the DGA negotiations that are beginning today uh, mean that that will be delayed. That's too bad. I don't know if the companies would have been available to talk to us anyway today had they not been. I imagine that part of the company's plan is to negotiate with the DGA while we're on strike in the hopes that a deal with the DGA that they assume they will one day make will somehow divide our membership. That's not going to work. Um, the biggest reason why it won't work is because the DGA is not negotiating a, a, a series of demands that can solve our problems. You know, there's some overlap, but most of the things that we're talking about are specific to writers. They can't solve the problem, and them signing a contract won't let the AMPTP off the hook. What happens with SAG-AFTRA, I think, is a is a you know less clear right now. It's further away. They've been enormously supportive. It'll be interesting to see. What I think they have many uh, parallel issues to the ones we have. It's very very difficult for their rank and file to to make a career out of this thing. But that's not mine to talk about. That's that's theirs. But we'll we'll see what happens. We, we understand that there that the DGA at least is going to delay us from getting in. Um, 
we prefer that not to be the case, but it is the case, and we will just hold together. You know, in terms of the union's activism and organization this time, how have you seen that be different from the last strike in 2007, 2008? I mean, obviously, Twitter does seem to be playing a role in terms of communications and and sharing the locations of productions and other grassroots organizations. Yeah, yeah. Technology like that actually is, is, has, uh, has changed the game somewhat. There are so many things that have changed. Obviously, the, the companies that we face are not exactly the same as the companies we faced then. You know, I, look, the 2007-8 strike was enormously effective, right? It got us the jurisdiction over the internet that we wanted. It did it in, uh, in those three months. And the guild needed to be extraordinarily aligned to have that happen. Amazingly, we are even more aligned today than we were then. I think there is, and even Patrick Verone, who led that, was the president then and led that effort, uh, says in watching, listening to people talk today, the, ex- the depth and breadth of our solidarity is even more remarkable than it was that. By the way, that has nothing to do with the fact that we now have a coalition of guilds and unions across the industry that stand shoulder to shoulder with us, which was not the case at that point. So the world has changed meaningfully. and. Um, and in many ways, I think this is a more powerful, more experienced uh, guild than it was in 2007-8. The process of us learning how to do this began then. Not That's not fair to say. There were strikes before that. But this era of guild leadership and activism after all that hiatus, after the 88 strike began in 2007-8, we learned from that. We learned from the 2017 strike authorization vote. We learned a lot from the agency campaign. And uh, in addition to that, we are we are unfortunately fueled by uh, business practices on the part of all the companies led, I think, by the new entrance into the field that make writers' lives so difficult across the board at every level. That uh, it's it's the pain they inflict that causes our sol- that causes our solidarity, and it's the pain they inflict that causes every other guild and union to stand stand with us. Let's be clear. You know, when corporations treat workers as if they are not meaningful, when they diminish us and devalue us, at some point we stand together and fight back. We're lucky to have a pretty unionized sector of the uh, of of, uh, of business in this country in the in the entertainment industry. So we 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 don't have as much power as we you know. I think it would be best that we do have labor. Always needs to fight for what it what what it's worth, but do okay in this sector. Leslie mentioned the power of Twitter and social media when it comes to organizational things. I'm curious from your perspective, what you've learned in the past two weeks about the power of social media in terms of messaging and in terms of the solidarity and unifying of the messaging that you guys are seeing on social media and wanting to see on social media. No, it's an interesting, it's a complicated question. I don't know. We we have so much to do, Dan. It's I, and I, I don't. We don't have a lot of time to sit back and think about all of those things. But those things are happening in real time all around us. There is an enormous advantage in having a, so many speakers, such a large megaphone that social media provides, and the ability to have so many speakers speaking through that megaphone as we have. There's a risk too, obviously, is that everyone, as that message becomes diffuse, and many many speakers express, you know put it out into the world, that you can begin to get a muddy message. The fact that we haven't, I think, really comes from the fact that we were all very clear when we started exactly what we were fighting for, what was wrong in the business, what writers were experiencing. So 
uh, we try to talk to our members as much as we can. I think the, the Writers Guild is very good at being transparent. We do we we present wherever we can as much information as possible. We put out that two pager about exactly where the strike, where the not the strike, where the negotiations were on the day that the negotiations broke off. I think members were appreciative of that. It is certainly our philosophy that the more people know, the more they're likely to be um, unified and certain of their the battle. The the less uncertain they are, the less fear that grows. So we do that, but you got to hand it to the members and the fact that they feel this deeply to explain fully why our social messaging is so coherent as it seems to be so far. Have you been sort of been have you been able to in the past ten days see kind of I don't I don't want to say winning the message battle, but have you been able to kind of get a feeling of the messages that are going out there better and worse and and how social media has changed this kind of process from 2007 when it just wasn't the thing that was as relevant? Ooh, I'm not sure. I'm not. I'm not, I have to figure out what you're trying to say to me. Are you saying are we assessing? messages in relationship to each other and which ones are working better and which ones are le- working less well, well as, a, as a starting point but just the general idea that in any uh situation like this there's always public facing wise going to be a message that is a winning message with the overall public beyond just the people who are on the picket lines versus necessarily messages that aren't hitting home i'll say a couple of things about that first our principal goal is not to win over the general public. We have been really clear with each other, with the members, that the writers are enough. It's, it is hugely beneficial to us from a morale point of view that the world seems to understand that this is a vanguard action that supports the rights of labor across the board. It's in, even more beneficial, by the way, that other guilds and unions have understood that, but they understood that before this, this round of social messaging went out. It's less important, though, helpful that the world understands this fully, right? They, we, we need to keep 12,000 writers or whatever percentage of them are actively engaged, understanding what they're fighting for and committed to the cause. That's, that's our principal goal. The messaging there seems to be working extremely well, as I said, I think because from the very beginning, the central messages of this act, this work action were ringing very true to all the membership. We began with a 7,000 member survey, not even the right way to put it, a survey that 7,000 members answered, which is the largest response I think we've ever gotten. And it gave us a very clear, really exhaustive picture about what's going on in the business. And we use that to craft an agenda and to talk about it by saying back to the members the things that they were saying to us. I think that's worked really very well. Um, and it turns out to have worked well, I'll be honest, not just with the membership, but with the world beyond that. In some sense, even with um, the journalists who cover us, who I have to say, I mean, I don't, I, I, I don't mean any of you are you're, you're coming and trying to be as unbiased as possible, but I think there is some sympathy um, for people who are also laborers for the idea this is true. And so I will admit the Writers Guild had always found in the past that there was a tendency on the part of a lot of those uh, of the, the media outlets to slightly skew things in, in one direction or another. And we're not seeing that now. We're seeing a, a pretty even-handed discussion of what's going on. And that's enormously gratifying to us. And I think it has something to do with the fact that the world has changed a little bit and that the things we're talking, look, everyone knows the business is broken, right? There's a reason why Jeremy Zimmer stood up before the strike and said, the writers are right. They should make a deal. This doesn't make any sense. There's a reason why 
almost everyone you talk to, agents, managers, lawyers, they say, we get it. It's broken. Producers, it's broken. SAG after, it's broken. The Teamsters and everyone, it's broken. They know it's broken. So when we say it's broken, everyone says, well, you got it right. Getting back into some of the of the weeds here, there has been some confusion, at least publicly facing anyway, uh, and even controversy in some cases about how involved writers can be with their projects right now. This week, we saw Tony Gilroy announced that he ceased all producing work on Andor. Uh, another instance, Shonda Rhimes appeared on CBS News this week to promote Queen Charlotte. Uh, Charlie Day showed up at his movie premiere, but didn't do press there. What's the etiquette for those writers who are listening? Let me see if I can exp- explain it as easily, as, as simply as possible, what we're saying to writers. Understanding that there is leeway inside that for writers to decide what they're able to do. So the strike rules are clear about certain things you can't do. You can't write. You can't do more than that. You can't do anything that puts any written work into the pipeline. Um, Develop it in any way. Talk to anyone about that. You can write on your own. You know, you can do a spec script. You can't do any work that is in requires a writer's brain while you are doing what might be considered your writing producing function. In other words, you can't go to the set because you can't go to the set and listen to a line of dialogue and not being and and not have something to say about the script. You're going to editing and say there isn't writing involved with that. So those things are pretty clear. There are jobs that writers do, and I'm not talking about hyphenates yet. There are jobs that writers in and producers do that are not covered by the strike rules. They are not strictly speaking writing. We are asking everyone who can to cease performing all of those services. To do that because in this moment, we are antagonists. The studios are antagonists. They are not our collaborators, and we need to treat them that way. We have to behave in a way that puts everything on the table as pressure on them and not to take any of that pressure off by saying we'll take care of it. We're making an argument that says that this process needs writers all the way through, and you have to pay us that way. We have to actually behave in a way that says that's right also. We're going to withhold our services. We're withholding our services. So that's what we're asking everyone to do. In addition to that, as part of that, we're asking people not to do promotion as partners with studios. We're asking people, even if their shows are being promoted, to not be part of that. That is the ask. But it's yeah, we've had a lot of showrunners pull out of doing uh, press days. No one's going to do postmortems. It's unclear, like, you know, succession is going to end. It's unclear if Jesse Armstrong is actually going to do any interviews, et cetera. That's exactly right. Having said that, there are some showrunners who are working through the way, and by the way, Tony Gilroy's been amazing about them. The Duffer Brothers have been amazing about that. And Jen Stasky and everyone on Hacks has been incredible about that. All been really good. Um, not everyone has decided for themselves that that is the way they were going to behave across the board. We're, tr- we're asking them as much as we can to, to stand with us. We're saying that when we all stand together, we are stronger. And the more we divide up, we, the, the weaker we are. We're saying that the Teamsters have put their own livelihoods on the line in many cases, as it turns out, not to cross our picket line. From your vantage point, if you're advising Shonda Rhimes, does she do that CBS News interview? Or does she? Do, or do you ask her not to? You know, I'm not gonna. I, I'm not gonna judge Shonda. She's been great on this. She's really supportive. She's ceased work on the shows. She's given a lot of money to the the fund to support everyone in the business. She's been great. She's a great guild member. Um, everyone's got to make some decisions on the margins about this stuff. The more decisions that are made in one direction, the better off we are. But I, I want to say two other things. First is our principal power is withholding writing. 
the success or failure of this strike is not going to depend on the off instance of somebody performing a small bit of services or showing up next to um, a sign with their network on it. That is not a make or break. The more we can do, the better we can do, but we shouldn't be focusing on that to the exclusion of what our principal power is. The other thing is, it is not in our best interest, and we do not encourage people to go out and, and vilify those who are trying to make a, an honest assessment of what their power and the situation merits. So that's not, that's not where we're focused. We are focused on communicating, trying to explain to as many people as we can why the fewer services they can provide, the better. And if they can provide none, that's perfect. We're focused on maintaining our solidarity out on the picket lines and putting pressure on the companies every way we can. And that that's the best we can do. You know, it's like it's a it's a 10,000 front war we're fighting in a sense. And it's not all going to go perfectly. It's going incredibly well. But the, the report that somebody may have without, you know, decided that they ought to show up an event or not is not a make or break. And I don't want to focus on it too much. That's fair. Infinites are a little more complicated because they have uh, they have work to have, they have to perform under their contracts, obviously. And though there are really gray areas that we have to talk about uh, with them, we're not, we're not and by the way, we would be if a director writer said, I can't direct my own movie because I can't not be a writer when I'm also a director. Great, but we are not saying that they should not fulfill their obligations under their directing contract, nor that an actor should. Right. I mean, so is that what you're advising members, you know, your hyphenates, the w WGA members who are also DGA members? Yes. I mean, I, I probably, because I won't get this exactly right because it's complex. I would say we're saying a couple of things. We're saying, obviously, you cannot write. You can't write. You can't go to the set and direct. And if a line needs to be changed, you can't change that line. It's weird, but that's the way it is because writing is not permitted. So we're not saying you may not direct. That's not our authority. And you have a contract to direct or you have a contract to act. You can go do that, but you just can't, you can't break our strike rules. Now, beyond our strike rules, if you have the power and the desire to do it and say, I'm not going to do this other work, that's great. That's obviously it's beneficial to us, but that is a that's a personal decision that's being made by that writer or director. I think it's I am very sympathetic. I'm really sympathetic to everybody. Everyone's in horrible positions. It's a miserable thing to be in. I'm sympathetic to the people who have been at jobs for a while and now can't get them for all these months. I'm sympathetic to people who've gotten their first jobs and and now have to put them aside. I'm sympathetic to showrunners who have their first shows or any show and have to give that up. I'm really sympathetic to hyphen it, so a, a person who's been working forever to direct their their movie or uh, or their television show and now is ambition to get on set and say, well, my job is both things simultaneously and doing one but not the other is nearly an impossibility. I don't know what to do about that. I don't know what happens when a scene starts to go in the wrong direction, but I can't fix it. When an actor needs a line and I can't fix it, that's, an, that's a very difficult dilemma that people are going to have to figure out. The rule is you can't write, though. That's the rule. You just can't write. You know, week two of, of the strike has seen a lot of studios suspending first look and overall deals. Have First of all, have you gotten a suspension letter from Lionsgate, the studio behind Julia? Um, I am not on a deal with them. And so it's it's actually, it, that was taken over by it, what was HBO Max and is now Max. I'm not, I am not on a deal so with them. So no, I did not. 
And what have you heard from writers whose deals have been suspended? I mean, did they negotiate any kind of mandatory suspension period before they can be terminated under the force majeure clause? Can you talk a little bit about that? No, I'm not. I'm not in the front lines of that. I'm sure that's the legal department is. That's not me avoiding a question. I, I genuinely don't. I don't know. I mean, I've read I've read through all of you um, and heard through writers that those those deals are suspended. I don't think that was surprising to us. I'm not sure that we expect them always to pay us when we don't work. We just expect them to pay us when we do. That's fair. You know, when I've been out on the front lines almost every day of, of the strike. And, you know, the first week I heard a lot of concerns and showrunners and writers of all levels talking about AI and artificial intelligence. This week, when I was out talking to writers, I've, most of the conversation has really kind of shifted now to, to the size, the minimum size of writers rooms with a lot of people, uh, at least today when I was at Disney, referring to Sierra Teller Ornelius's excellent thread about her experience on Happy Endings, which was populated with 17 writers in that room, mo many of whom became showrunners in their own right. From your perspective, is there wiggle room in terms of the most important issues that the WGA will fight for in this negotiation? And have any of those items moved over the course of the negotiations in the strike? So you'll appreciate that I can't really answer that question. I'm not going to give the AMPTP clues as to what we care more or less about. But I will say this, because you mentioned AI and minimum room size, they are part of the same agenda. The, what we're protecting is against the end of weekly pay for writers, the end of the staff, the, the writing profession, really, the heart of which is the way the television shows have been written over the last 50 years, which is a reasonably sized writer's room working for a certain number of weeks to create a certain number of episodes. So whether they try to replace some of us with a machine, and by the way, our egg, I... Our AI premise here is not that writers go away or that AI is creative and can replace writers in that sense. But that is, you know, you put a showrunner in a room with a machine who can churn out lots of pages over and over again, you might be able to, you know, eliminate a lot of writing positions in that way. We won't be okay with that. But they don't need a machine to replace us right now. All across the industry, they're replacing us with no one. They're putting a few writers into a room for a few weeks and making us work as fast as we can to give them as much as we possibly can, letting everyone go and then saying to the showrunner, okay, now do all the rest of the work and people can effectively be writing this stuff freelance without weekly pay. Either one of those things is devastating to the guild. It, it really is the end of the guild middle class. It's the end of our pension and health plan. It's, um, so I can't say it's one without the other. But ending AI will not save us. Uh, but not ending AI could doom us. Yeah, I've seen a couple of uh, very witty signs out on on the picket lines. Uh, and I spoke to Damon Lindelof uh, today about AI. Obviously, he's got his AI theme show, Mrs. Davis on Peacock. But, yeah. you know, one of the, the things that I kept hearing and kept seeing is, you know, if you're business affairs, and Damon said this, if you're a business affairs executive, there's a good chance that you could be that, th that they could be replaced by AI, that some of the, you know, like there, there I've seen picket signs where, where writers have, have said AI gives better network notes or, you know, like the executives giving the notes can be replaced by AI just as much as the writers possibly could. And, you know, we also did a story where we asked chat GPT to, to write a scene from 30 rock in which the writers, uh, uh, go on strike. And it was like, and then Dan reviewed it and Dan, you can take it from here, but like, it wasn't a good review, <laughs> you know? Yeah. But I'd say a couple of things about that. The first is this technology is improving exponentially every day. 
And so what it will be able to do in three years when we're back in the negotiating table, no one knows. And I think it is right to be afraid of the possibility that it can move forward that way. And I will say, because the companies refused to talk about it, and Carol very explicitly said, I won't restrict the technology I might want to use, we have to be very worried that they have a plan to do that. You don't, you don't protect something that has no value to you. We thought they would actually be pretty open to it because of copyright issues and all of that, but they seem to be intent on something. So I think, I think you have to believe that, there is a, that they have a sense that somewhere in the future, this is going to be valuable. But I'm not saying it's going to write a great scene. I'm just saying it's going to write a second draft or a first draft of something that somebody can polish in a way that becomes more efficient than having a bunch of writers in the room. So, and, and AI, by the way, may have some use in, in the entire process, but not as literary material. That's what we're saying, not as literary material. So without getting in too much into it, because I know it's the great fear, and I think it's a, a reasonable fear. Um, it's only a piece of, a, of, I think, a coherent agenda. It, it did rise, though, by the way, on our, our list of things to be afraid of based on the way the companies behaved. You know, you can, you can always tell what matters. We won't talk to you about uh, how many weeks a writer needs to work. We won't talk to you about the fact that you have to, we have to hire some writers to make a television show, even though a television show requires writers to be made. We won't talk to you about AI. We won't talk to you about success-based residuals, because those are the things. We won't talk to you about screen issues at all, practically, because those are the things they're afraid of doing, because that's what... You know, that's where the money is for writers. I mean, from my vantage point, what interests me, and this is not saying that I'm not interested in, in everything else that you guys are, have on the table, but Dan and I have been doing this show for over 200 episodes now, and I can't, I, I have lost track of the number of times I have said that streaming services don't release viewership data, and I'm not in the mood to ever do an algebraic equation based on the minutes watched in the first 24 hours and how long a, a, a TV show episodes add up to be in terms of total minutes. And like, I'm not going to do math. I want these, these streamers to give us clear and concise viewership data, completion rate. They have all of this data. That's also one of the things that they're not willing to, to engage on. But when you're looking at trying to, to create a residuals based system, now that foreign and as and streaming rights ha have dried up and the how i mean it's it's got to feel like you're climbing mount everest to try to get netflix and and all the streamers to come off of actual streaming data yeah everything is everything we do is climbing mount everest they they're just a series of everests uh for labor and and every time technology changes that the mountain in front of us gets bigger it's true I, they, look they they ask us to take the risks with them and yet they refuse to let us um, share in the benefit uh, and and it's untenable and we have to try to do something about it i think they're going to have to move in that direction anyway i think history the future is going to be on our side they are all looking toward um, ad-based re revenue um, advertisers are going to demand that information. So that information is going to become, I think, increasingly available. But you're right. In I mean, every way, Netflix is doing, is participating in a upfronts week after Paramount dropped out. So that you literally are, you have the biggest streamer in the world participating in something that was traditionally reserved for broadcast networks. Right. So that I think will be helpful. It is a really hard battle. But if anyone's probably you're listened to mostly by people inside the industry, but if you are listening to somebody outside the industry, I think it's pretty easy to say to them, look, 
when people won't tell you how well you're, they're doing, you can bet they're doing awfully well, right? Or awfully poorly if you're Donald Trump. But um, <laughs> if, if, um, they're doing awfully well. They are hiding the money. And that's what they do. They, they hide the money. We've got to find it. It's been interesting to see some politicians waving, you know, moving in directly and giving comments on this and others staying in the background. Of course, uh, Joe Biden gave a, a tempered pro-writer stance. Uh, you had Kamala Harris uh, avoiding crossing a picket line. But then there are also some politicians, some very large politicians in the city of Los Angeles and in the state of California who have not said anything specifically one way or the other. How has the reaction from political forces on the outside compared to what you expected or hoped for? I don't know. I mean, I, I, I think we understand the, you know, the, the difficulties that, uh, that a system based on money um, provides, <laughs> presents to people. Uh, we are grateful for the support we have. I thought President Biden's support was pretty good, to be honest with you. It's uh, pretty remarkable this early on the President of the United States takes time out to speak on behalf of writers and labor in general. So we were incredibly grateful for that, as we were for, to all the people who've spoken out on our behalf. We're still early on, though. I, I, I think I don't want to put a deadline and say, why haven't some people spoken yet? Um, I think you'll hear more and more people feeling pressure. Uh, particularly in the Democratic Party, which is, you know, for whom uh, labor is an Im immensely important constituency, that they will they will feel some obligation to say something about what's happening to writers. And but as I said, to writers, because it's happening to so many people in almost every industry that that we are the the effect of of the conglomeration of obsession with quarter over quarter profits of the Wall Streets approval of your constant growth at, to the, at the expense of all the people who create the value for you is putting pressure on everybody across the board. We're just, we're lucky enough to have a relatively powerful union and unions, as I said, in guilds in this industry that can fight back somewhat, but it's such a powerful enemy. Um, and it's, it's sort of, it's, it, it, it's a conversation that has to be had. And if we start it, we're not starting it, but if we enliven it, we bring it to the fore again, I, I hope I, I think it's good for American labor in general. Well, along those lines, one of the messages that people have been that writers have been trying to get out is that a lot of the studios have been trying to see writing as being another part of the gig economy. And I, I think there's been a lot of people trying to make it clear why that might not necessarily be a good thing. And that feels like a point around which you guys can be universalizing what your message is compared to other people who's jobs have similarly become gig economy based. How do you make those connections for people? You know, this is not just us. This is part of a bigger national labor fight. Well, as I said, I, you know, I think that is not, that's not our frontline message. I think that's got to be underneath. It's got to be the, the implication of what we're saying and other people hear in our arguments that are specific to us, um, resonance, and then they come to our side. And certainly the people in the industry have done that. Periodically, we do that, and I think there are people who are speaking about that. I know Billy Ray talked about that, and in his podcast, and uh, and it, and I think he's right about it. I think it is a reflection of of the treatment of labor by and large. But we're still we still have this obligation to message very specifically to our membership in ways that they respond to, and I think they do respond to this idea that it's increasing like a gig economy. There's no ladder of success. You have no sense of security. Jobs are very short-lived, you know, with long breaks in between. That's, it's, a, it's a debilitating way to work. It also, in our case, 
has nothing to do with the actual with the actual creative process works, which makes it in some ways even even worse because we're being kicked off of shows while writing is still being done. Um, so that resonates with people, but it resonates because the, there's a truth at the heart of it, rather than us having to lead and say, "Did you notice that this is <laughs> that everyone's." suffering some version of this by the way the companies came back and said oh my god your gig economy analogy that's just not a perfect analogy uh, and we say to them you are you are so right the language we should have used is a series of short-term jobs at the lowest rate possible with long breaks in between and no ladder of success economy we shouldn't have called it a gig economy that's a it's a very very good note um which we take <laughs> <laughs> how much have you been out on the picket lines talking to writers uh, I've been out every day. Um, not today. Today's the first day because I have a big member meeting and then I'm meeting with you now. But yesterday I was at a couple of picket lines and the day before I was at a couple of picket lines. And that's true of all the Gil, all the NEGCOM and board members, officers, and my co-chair, David Goodman. We're all trying to visit as many and a lot of the staff as well. You know, there's a lot of pressure. To, there's stuff we have to do, right? I think tomorrow yeah. we've got, we have a, a, a big meeting at the Gill to, because we keep, we need to continue communicating with each other and the members. So it's a balance, but I find it very uh, invigorating to be out there and, and talking to people. What's the common refrain that you're hearing as you're, as you're talking to your colleagues and your peers? We've got this right. We cannot stop. We will stay at this until we cut, they come back to the table and give us what we need. Because for us, we're fighting for our professional lives. And what about the refrain about the big issues that that writers are unwilling to compromise on that you're hearing from from others as you're walking the line? I think there's we are, I think, united on all of those things. Right. It's 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 going very well. I don't people do not pull me aside in the line and say, why are we fighting for this? They say fight. You know, you've obviously done a few rounds of open forums with, with membership. Obviously there was the big showrunner meeting over the weekend. Uh, there was a rally last week, uh, talking about some of the issues of that are of the most Im- important, uh, but in terms of actually being on the ground on the picket line, have you been able to get a sense of the people's concerns and what some of their sticking points on some of these issues are? No, I, I think that's what I'm saying. I'm not getting conversation from members who say, what's the deal with this part, with this argument or that argument? Almost all the conversation is, this has been my experience. That's what we share. It's like, this is what I just went through. I met, I saw, I met a showrunner the other day who told what were the different stories, uh, not being paid for post for four months, working for nine months without a writing staff, being offered in financial incentives not to hire writers by companies. Other people, a woman who told me about four eight-week mini-rooms in a row that had been her career. That's the stuff that people are talking about. They're sharing their stories. One of the reasons the negotiating committee had this advantage of having these 7,000 answers to um, survey questions and then having people come to us and say, hey, this is what's going on. Writers have a slightly more limited experience with what's what's happened in the guild everyone understands what's happening to them and maybe those people with whom they come in contact but one of the things that happens on the picket line is that we share our stories with each other and those stories reinforce the feeling that we have over and over again whether you're a screenwriter or a comedy variety writer or an episodic television writer that the companies are coming for our employment they're looking to reduce labor costs systematically uh, in features by asking for unlimited free work and offering no protections and not offering protections in streaming that they haven't theatrical. So those movies are the same and comedy variety by offering day rates, which is 
if there's no better sense of what where their the company's heads at than the proposal to offer day rights and in episodic television the idea that they are essentially dismantling writing staffs which is the way television been made and in eliminating writer pay turning us into free freelancers which is not a sustainable business model for a writer and not sustainable for the guild and not good for television right none of that stuff there's a reason why we made tv the same way for 60 70 years and by the way we made short order shows this way also without without all of this stuff going on there were short order shows for a decade before the streamers came in and began to dismantle the way um, shows are made right the, so this is not it is not a requirement of having eight or 10 or 12 episodes that you you actually pay writers only for a few weeks and then kick them out that is just a relentless search for the lowest labor cost you could possibly have without regard to the creative process or the fact that we are essentially a labor force that works only periodically and cannot survive if you don't pay us the value of what we create and only for a few weeks and say, wait around for a phone call until the next job comes. That's just never going to work. And then say, even to those who have gotten to the point where they have the success of making their own movie or having their own television show, well, there's no pot of gold at the end of this rainbow, right? This is a small multiple of what you made during all those hard times. And yes, you, you worked you worked for five years to get your first job. You worked many times, only one out of every two years as you struggled. Now you work 20 weeks a year if you're lucky. And then when you get a show on the air, for example, you can work hundred you can work 60 or 70 weeks until we amortize you down to the lowest rate we can pay you. Then we'll pay you nothing as you do post. You'll make less per average week on week than your staff, your story editor makes. That's the reward for getting for for the you know the for your dream. Yeah. That's the reward for your dream. Yeah. Is. Yep. So it's just, so yep. I know that's a long answer. Those are the things people are talking about. They ask questions like, how does this work? What are you asking for on transparency? You know, what, how do your open proposals compare to where you expect to end up? And we say, we can't tell you all those things, but, um, but they don't say, well, why are you fighting for this? It's like we, they, they say, um, we can't stop. They say, I have a child and I would never tell them to go into this business. They say my, the money I've made over all these years is dried up completely. They say, I don't know how anyone can do this for 20 years and make a living yeah. out of it. I met, a, I met a writer on uh, day one who was homeless for a few years in between gigs um, and turned to like teaching and things like that. But um, moving on a little bit, you know, there have been, been some rumors that Netflix in particular has been harder to negotiate with than the traditional studios this time around. Is that true? And if so, why? You mean in the in the AMPTP in the mm -hmm. room? Yes. We have no sense of they don't they negotiate with us all together and and in the room they don't show any cracks. We have no idea. You can intuit whatever you want based on their behavior outside that room, but we don't we don't know. You know, you kind of touched on this at the beginning of the interview and to bring it all full circle, you know, is there a possibility for companies within the AMPTP to carve out their own deals with the WGA? I mean, I, as I recall, David Letterman's Worldwide Pants did that during the last strike. Do, you know, could you see that happening or any company doing that this time? I don't, I don't want to say definitively about anything. I don't think you'll see us making small deals with with small individual companies. There's a big risk in going on strike and having some of your members working and some not. And I don't know that that was, I don't know that we came out of 2007, eight thinking that was a particularly good idea. It's a entirely different question to ask what happens if a bunch of the major companies decided that they were no longer advantaged by negotiating altogether. Would we be open to that? 
we might be open to that. Um, but that's their game, and they will have to play that. That's not that's a decision they make. We all all we're doing is putting pressure on them every single day, and that pressure is ramping up. And then they have to decide how they're going to respond to it. I mean, obviously, you know, you you mentioned this that the pressure really is on these broadcast networks because they have a very clear schedule of when they need to have episodes delivered to get them on the air for the new fall season that starts the third week of September, right? These are, you know, that's just a known fact. Um, but the streamers are in a different position. Do you think that there's a world in which the traditional media companies and the streamers kind of split where the streamers split off from the AMPTP and form their own coalition? I can imagine a world in which that happens, but it's so it's so entirely in their corner to make that decision and not mine. You know, I, I might make that decision. I might think, well, these companies are not only going in a different direction from the point of view of their business model, but they would like to eat us up. You know, we are, we are it's a horrible mixed metaphor. It's like we're hitching our wagon to a carnivore. Um, you know, it's that old, uh, like the, the scorpion given the ride to the fraud, whatever. I can't remember the thing. And they get bitten at the end. And it's like, well, that's what a scorpion does. If you don't think that's what I mean, David Zaslav and, and, and Ted Sarando said, I can weather this better than the rest of you. So I think he's being, he's being pretty clear on what's going on with it. But I want to say, by the way, we are not without our leverage over the streamers as well. They have their pressure points in the same way. And I don't think Apple's model is the same as Netflix's. It's not as if they are entirely aligned. Apple as a company for whom this is a tiny piece of, I guess, a brand building, you know, with its customers, um, has to deal with the what it looks like to be what they seem to be in a lot of places, which is an enemy of labor. And not just anonymous labor, but the people who make the programs that they're, the people who use their phones and their watches and their computers love. So, it's, I don't know how much Wall Street's going to take to that. I do, these companies are highly susceptible to changes in their stock prices. And, um, you know, we'll see what happens if this has an implica- implications there. And even Netflix, which churns a lot of stuff out, is putting an enormous hole in its, in its ability to produce that material. So there's going to be a point in time in which this stuff is going to start to dry up. And they, they can see that coming. They can say everything they want about putting on uh, shows from other countries. But the reason why that works together is because of a mix of things. So it is always these companies' MO to say, oh, we don't need writers. We don't need these shows. We can get along without them. Right. And then there's the narrative of these companies actually do want to strike because they're still struggling to kind of come back from the years of losses that and, and the expenses associated with coming out of COVID, whether it's increased production costs and everything else, the rising cost of talent and showrunners that, you know, Dan and I talk about that almost every week on this show. Do you think that that's a a fair narrative? I mean, that do these, in your experience, from what you've seen and heard, do you think the AMPTP members want this strike so that they can have an opportunity to offset their books? I think that's nonsense. So um, that's what I think. Um, I was going to say before, I think Netflix is going to find that it has their implications. Everyone always says, you know, oh, we can get along without writer's product. And yet writer's product is exactly what's at the heart of their business for all these years. So at some point that gets, you have to pay that price. Um, I, people say, well, they want to shut down. They, they, they need to stop producing because they need to save money. So they could stop producing. No one, no one is forcing them to make any show. If they need to bring down costs and do that, they can do that entirely on their own. And I don't, I am not saying 
that while we're on strike, they may not punish us by by using force majeure. But the idea that it is their business model to loose onto the world the chaos of this strike on behalf of a consortium of companies, which then means they lose control of what's going on and this stuff shuts down and they have no idea exactly what the total cost is going to be. And it's going to be high to them in exchange for trying to let go of what's left of some number of outstanding overall deals that they find are marginally less productive than they wish they would be. But that just doesn't make any sense at all. I mean, that that is not a business plan. So, And by the way, if they have so many overall deals that are worth so little to them that they need to cause a, call a strike in order to, to write them off, they should fire all the executives who made those deals because that is one hell of a mound of terrible deals they've made. But that's I mean, not- replace them with AI, right? Yeah, that's not what's going on. That's not what's going on. It's it, all of this stuff is it's all PR weapons against against us. As I say, I don't mean that they will not be overall deals that uh, in order to cause pain. May they may think of of, of trying to dump and and yeah, but they're not going to. I mean, they're not going to dump Ryan Murphy and his four hundred million. They're not going to dump Shonda and her three hundred plus. They're not going to dump Berlanti and his three hundred plus. Or Dick Wolf or Chuck Lorre, they're going to dump the low and middle classes, which is, you know, going back to what you were talking about. And it has to be volume for it to even make a difference. Right. And even some of those, those, those writers who are still producing incredible stuff for them, and you don't need to be among the mega rich to be doing great work. They don't want to send those writers back off into the marketplace for somebody else to scoop them up. I mean, there's still, you know, we may be there. They're, they're temporary antagonists across the table, but their principal antagonists are each other. Remember, they're not. This is this is a phony situation in which they link arms against us. They are they are in a much more intense war against each other. So, as I said, it's we're going to face pain in all different kinds of ways, even as we inflict it. And and it's one of the horrible parts of doing this and asking people to do this and be you know being in the leadership of it, but. There's just no way around it, unfortunately, because because the alternative is is the extinction of the profession. And and by the way, just you can't doubt the extent to which writers believe that, right? I mean, they say to people, "We've only struck once before in 35 years. We don't do this lightly. We we don't get 98 percent strike authorization vote and show up by the thousands. And you don't hear." this kind of unanimity. You don't see every other guild and union standing shoulder to shoulder, except because of, of the way the companies behave. I just like to say when there's an, when there's an effect, there's a cause. That seems like a terrific place to wrap things up. Thank you so much for giving us your time on what we are sure is a very busy day, week, month, and season for you, Chris. I really appreciate the time to talk about this. Thanks. And an equal time disclaimer here. I've gone out to the AMPTP with an offer for equal time with a member of their negotiating committee, but the group that represents the studios declined to participate, pointing us instead to their document released last week that responded to the Guild's proposal. Number five. As usual, we wrap things up with the Critics' Corner. Among this week's major new launches, the Goldbergs creator Adam F. Goldberg bows his first show for Disney with The Muppets Mayhem on Disney+. Plus. Former TV's top five guest Josh Schwartz takes on City on Fire for Apple. Hulu returns to the great, and the great Hannah Gatsby is back with a new comedy special on Netflix. Dan, what you got? Lots of stuff, lots of interesting stuff, not all of it. Great stuff, so to speak. Um... 
You mentioned Muppets Mayhem on Disney+, Plus, which is the latest in an ongoing mysterious effort to overcomplicate the Muppets um, and to attempt to find new and exciting and hip things to do with the Muppets rather than simply making the Muppet Show again. Now, I understand that it might seem a little bit creatively uninspired to make the Muppet Show again, but it also seems to be like the best use of the Muppets, at least thus far, other than a couple movies, which obviously are tremendous, has been the Muppet Show. So anyway, The Muppets Mayhem is not The Muppet Show. It is, in fact, exclusively focused on uh, Dr. Teeth and the Electric Mayhem, who everyone will know as kind of the house band from The Muppet Show, but also the endlessly touring jam band at the heart of some Muppet Show and Muppet-based sketches and whatnot. Uh, people obviously know several of the principles in Dr. Teeth and the Mayhem, including, obviously, Dr. Teeth, but also it's the band that gave us Janice and, of course, to some degree, Animal. Uh, and the premise of the new series is that Lily Singh, who is the human star of this show, plays a record label assistant whose record label is going under because the business is falling apart, as you might have heard. She's trying to find one way to save the label, and she discovers that the label has a contract with the Electric Mayhem for an album that was never actually recorded. So she seeks out the Electric Mayhem and over the course of 10 episodes, initially attempts to help them change their sound, bringing in a bunch of recognizable producers or semi-recognizable producers. I don't know if, if y'all know who Zed is, but he's definitely featured here. Uh, and lots of recognizable artists uh, to change their sound before realizing a valuable lesson about being true to who you are, which is a lesson we can all learn with or without the help of Dr. Teeth and the Electric Mayhem. Uh, in my review, I compared the theory here to being somewhat akin to what HBO did on White House Plumbers, which is we've done all of these different permutations of the Watergate story over the years, and eventually at a certain point we reached the version of the story that was filtered through the two wackiest, least grounded figures within that narrative, namely G. Gordon Liddy and E. Howard Hunt. And part of my problem with that show was its desperate need for kind of a still point around the madness and mayhem, if you will, at the center of the story. It kind of felt like it was nonstop chaos and it required a little bit more tonal variation to me. And I think honestly that I feel the same way about the electric mayhem or rather the Muppets mayhem, but also the electric mayhem as characters within it. Do I like the electric mayhem? Sure. Do I laugh often at Janice? Absolutely. Do I laugh at Animal? All the time. Uh, but does it require some amount of grounding around them to make them interesting as main characters? Yeah. And has this show figured out what that should be? No, not really. Uh, it's, it, I don't think it's in any way Lily Singh's fault that they haven't written a character for her and that they haven't written a dramatic conflict for her. For some strange reason, the only thing they've written for that character is basically every man who appears on the screen instantly falls in love with her, and that includes Animal, uh, which, you know, she, she, it's not like it's wildly implausible for people to fall in love with Lily Singh, just that you have to actually write it. And I don't feel like anyone really wrote anything that earns that. 
and 10 episodes is a lot. The celebrity cameos, some of them are fantastic. I'm, I'm not going to spoil them because, you know, you, you might want to be spoiled or you might not want to be spoiled, rather. Also, you don't necessarily need to know who all the people are because anyone who pops up on screen who's a star, they get introduced by their full name and somebody explaining what their background is just in case you're either too young to know who they are or too old to know who they are. That's always the real problem with the Muppets at this exact moment is that half of the people who love them are too old for the new generation that should love them. And so they can't find that happy middle wherein they're able to introduce the Muppets to a younger generation that unquestionably would love them and an older generation that already does. It, that continues to be the case here. It, it's this is yet another thing, a little bit like White House Plumbers, where probably if it had been a movie, it would have been a, a fine and amusing movie. There are no cameos from other Muppets within this world. This is not something where uh, where Kermit makes a guest appearance or Miss Piggy has a random cameo or anything like that. Nothing like that. This is the Electric Mayhem and their show. Uh, it it has a moment. It has a lot of moments, honestly. And so, if you're able to simply go, okay, it, I I like all of the things that Animal is doing on this show. That's what I'm watching it for. Maybe you'll be fine with ten episodes of that. So, but also maybe you won't. You referred to the great Hannah Gadsby, and their new comedy special is new on Netflix. Obviously, I'm gonna go so far as to say many or most viewers first experienced Hannah Gadsby with Nanette and then uh, their subsequent special. So this is the second follow-up after that. And it's, it's a good special. It's to me, it's not revelatory in that way that, that Nanette was, but part of that was not necessarily knowing Hannah Gadsby or only knowing Hannah Gadsby in a, in a very, very limited capacity and, and kind of being blown away by their comic rhythms, their storytelling, by the kind of surprise twists within that special. And part of the joke of this is that Hannah Gatsby says over and over again, this is a feel-good special, uh, and there's not going to be a twist. There's not going to be a twist. I'm not going to do a twist. And maybe that's kind of true. Maybe it isn't. It's it's a very, very intentionally rambling, intentionally stream-of-consciousness type special. It's at least partially tied to their autism diagnosis and to the fame that came out of Nanette and certain very, very funny, very cringeworthy celebrity interactions. So there's a, a long bit about an interaction with Jodie Foster, uh, <laughs> a very, very funny bit about meeting uh, Richard Curtis and announcing that they don't like rom-coms. Uh, so, so there are a lot of bits that actually are very funny, and I, I really love the way the storytelling arced towards the end. I don't think people are going to discuss this as much as they discuss Nanette, but it's it's worth watching because I think Hannah Gatsby's perspective is an extremely interesting one. So, I, I saw them on tour for this, and it was a great show. And I already watched the Netflix special; loved it. I'm kind of curious as to how different it would have been on tour because of just how much of it at least gives the impression of being spontaneously considered. Like, obviously, anytime a, a comedy, a comic has a, a rambling stream of conscious type approach to comedy, that's a thing that they've honed over countless shows and, you know, whatever. By the time it gets filmed, it's not a spontaneous thing anymore, but it gives the impression of being a spontaneous thing. And so 
you know. Anyway, so yes, that is already on Netflix. Um, then you've got Apple TV Plus's City on Fire. Now, City on Fire is interesting uh, because the book by Garth Risk Hallberg, it kind of arrived on a wave of this is a, a prodigious first novel. This is, you know, the, the latest in the candidates to be the great American novel, which had a lot to do with the fact that it was 950 pages and that it was all sorts of ambitious technical stuff going on within it. It's, it's set in multiple different timelines, flashbacks within flashbacks, flash forwards that come out of nowhere. There are a bunch of stylistic uh, digressions. Part of it is, is done in the style of a 70s style zine. Uh, part of it is done as part of a piece of reportage on fireworks because one of the main characters' fathers is in the fireworks business. So there's a lot of, ooh, I've done a lot of research on the history of fireworks. Let's get that into this somewhere. And, but when you get down to it, it's actually at its heart a really, really uninteresting murder mystery in which the main character hasn't actually been murdered, in which the main character is in a coma. But it's, Still, it's a mystery that isn't a very engaging mystery. And for the series, which was adapted in its entirety by Josh Schwartz and Stephanie Savage, they've reduced the flashbacks to a bare minimum. They've eliminated the entirety of the reportage and the fireworks stuff. The attempt to mimic the style of the 70s zine is a two-minute animated segment in the fourth episode, and that's it. And the story is no longer set in 1977, which allowed it to culminate in the historically pivotal New York City blackout. It's now in 2003, which allows it to culminate in a blackout in New York City that took place in the late afternoon and that was in no way as dramatic a thing. So basically everything distinctive about the story has been removed. And what you're left with is you're left with a mystery in which the mystery is a girl. It's the, the mystery is Chase Shui wonders, uh, Samantha who in the very first scene is found in the park with a bullet in her head, not enough to kill her, but you know, enough to at least seriously inconvenience her. Uh, and so it goes through a lot of ground trying to get to what happened to her, what she was involved in, et cetera, et cetera. It's all kind of instigated by the nerdy boy who loved her. So it's actually very much in the Josh Schwartz vein at a certain point. And both Chase We Wonders and uh, Wyatt Olef are, are straight out of the Josh Schwartz uh, casting catalog. You can absolutely imagine them having been in the OC, having been in Gossip Girl, et cetera, et cetera. They, they, they fit with the Josh Schwartz brand. And, and like the first four episodes basically feel like uh, looking for Alaska with a with a murder mystery graft onto it uh, and not an interesting one. And, and then when they have to actually solve the murder mystery in like the last two or three episodes, it's all just exposition. It's, it's just people sitting around tables telling things that weren't really illustrated in the first five episodes of the season. I, I was somewhat entertained by the first two or three episodes realized it wasn't going anywhere by the fourth and then was actively annoyed by how badly executed it was in the last three or four. It's, it, it, you know, basically I have a hard time imagining anyone's going to get deeply invested in it anyway. Uh, the, the mystery isn't exciting. The 2003 transposition of the story isn't exciting. 
There's very little exciting in the storytelling. The cast is fairly decent. Uh, I thought that Nico Tortorella was really, really funny and a character that's been changed pretty much completely from the book. Uh, I'm not sure if the character is supposed to be funny, but the character is funny. Uh, Jemima Kirk is is pretty decent. Ashley, Ashley Zuckerman is okay. John Cameron Mitchell is is kind of chewing a lot of scenery. Uh, but yeah, the, this this one just doesn't work at all. Uh, Apple had a, an impressive amount of success with Pachinko, which was an adaptation of a extremely sprawling, time jumping novel that was about historical context and people dealing with the forces of history and all of that, this is an entirely failed attempt to wrangle a, a sprawling story with historical context and other stuff. <laughs> so, yeah. And then finally, and this one's going to be pretty simple. I've watched half of the third season of, of the great, and it remains truly one of the more, foul-mouthed and delightful shows on television. Um, both Elle Fanning and Nicholas Holt are terrific. The supporting cast really gets better and better each season, in part because they get more and more to do each season. The show is still extremely full of wonderfully florid, obscenity-filled dialogue. It is one of the raunchiest shows on television while including very little actual on-camera sex. But boy, do people talk about sex all the time. Um, yeah, it's it's just a, a really, really good show. Through the halfway point in the season, there are a lot of kind of repetitive beats. I think that the number of different times that you can have, okay, these three random Russians are conspiring against Catherine and then they're going to pretend to be friends with her so that they don't die. And then they're going to conspire with her again. It, there, there are a lot of loops of that. And, and I don't know that, you know, I, I don't know it's opening the story up in an interesting way, unfortunately, but the way it tells the story, however contained it is, is so wonderfully entertaining and so consistently entertaining. And again, uh, Elle Fanning and, and Nicholas Holt are are as good as it gets in the lead roles in this show. Uh, both of them wholly Emmy worthy, should they be nominated, uh, just terrific performances. So to go back through things, always recommend The Great. Season two was in my top 10 for two years from two years ago. Really great. City on Fire, entirely skippable, completely. Uh, Muppets Mayhem on Disney Plus already has premiered. Fairly entertaining, but I would still rather just have a new version of The Muppet Show. And uh, Hannah Gadsby has a new comedy special on Netflix, which is worth watching. For more of Dan's weekly recommendations, be sure to subscribe to The Hollywood Reporter's Now See This newsletter and bookmark THR.com slash TV dash reviews for more. That feels like a good place to wrap things up. Thank you, as always, for listening to TV's Top 5, the Hollywood Reporter's TV podcast. Be sure to subscribe on all of your various podcasting platforms. If you like us, rate us. If you really like us, write a little reviewy thing. They do help spread the word of mouth. We're always happy to hear from you guys on Twitter. She's at Snoodit with two O's. I'm at The Fine Print, F-I-E-N. Also, if you have strike-related information that you want to pass around, Leslie's DMs are, as the kids say, open, slide into them, y'all, etc. <laughs> 
<laughs> Leslie is making a wincing face, so maybe just DM her, no sliding involved. Uh, but yes, so come say hi to us on Twitter. If you have questions for future mailbag segments, though, you can email us at tvstop5 at thr.com. That's TV's top five, the numeral five, at thr.com. Until next week, Leslie. Until next week, Dan. <laughs> <laughs>